0: If someone came up to you and asked what Christianity is all about, what would you say to them? And where would you start? For this series, what we're going to be doing is looking at some of the main points of Christianity and basically doing a crash course to look at different aspects of it. And my hope is it will help people like you be able to understand what Christianity is all about. And I understand this can be a daunting thing to think about because the answer to what Christianity is about is complicated. The full story of Christianity spans thousands of years. It includes people like Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, David, all the way to Jesus. The book for Christianity, the Bible, is actually a collection of 66 different books and letters written over the course of about 1500 years. So what is Christianity all about? (laughs) Well, it's complicated, but in this video, I wanna show you how really the answer is quite simple. The foundation for Christianity doesn't require you to know a bunch of different cultures and understand ancient customs. The foundation for Christianity really just takes you to one single event. That event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know that talking about a resurrection will raise some questions, but I just want to share with you what Christians in the first century put their faith in. I want to read from you a little section from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And what's interesting about this is that it was written by a man named Paul, who for the first part of his life, tried to discredit Christianity. He did all he could to get rid of Christians and to stop the Christian movement. But in the later part of his life, he was convinced that Christianity was for real, and it all had to do with the event of Jesus' resurrection. So Paul, a Christian preacher in the first century, put it this way. He said, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In other words, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then all of Christianity stands. If he wasn't raised from the dead, all of Christianity falls down. And what I can tell you is that Paul in the first century, a very smart, educated person, was convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. What I can also tell you is that within a couple of months of the event itself, thousands of people were convinced that he had risen from the dead. What I can also tell you is that in the first and second century, when Christianity had a lot of enemies, all the enemies had to do was show a body. But no one could show the body of Jesus because he had risen from the dead. And as you look at Jesus' own disciples and how they told the story of the resurrection, they would willingly face death rather than take back the faith in the one that they believed had been raised from the dead. When it comes to Christianity, I know it can be a complicated thing because it spans thousands of years of human history, and then you've got all sorts of teachings and doctrines alongside of it. But as we start this conversation about what Christianity is all about and maybe taking a crash course in Christianity, I want you to know that really the foundation is really simple. The foundation is in an event that happened, that Jesus really did come to live and die and rise again. All the evidence points to what he did for you. So if you have any questions about what happened, about how Jesus rose from the dead, or the evidence that there is for it, I encourage you to look into it for yourself. It's it's a deeper topic than we have time for in this video. There's some excellent resources, and if you want to learn more, I encourage you to reach out to our Time of Grace community at timeofgrace.org. We'd love to supply you with some resources and materials to help you as you search for who Jesus is and what he did for you. In the remaining videos in this series, we're going to look at more specific parts of Christianity and what we can learn in light of Jesus' resurrection. But for today, in this video, what I hope that you can take with you is that Jesus died and rose again, and for us, for the world, that changes everything. The shape of a cross is the universal symbol for Christianity, and rightly so. Whenever you tell the story of who Jesus Christ was, it always should focus you to the fact that he was crucified on a Roman cross. But why did Jesus have to die? And more specifically, why did he have to die like that? In this video, we're going to do a crash course on the death of Jesus and understand why he had to face that death the way he did. In order to really understand and appreciate the reason why Jesus died and how he died, an important thing for us to understand is the concept of sin. And just to let you know, sin is so much more than just doing something bad that hurts somebody else. Sin, at its root, separates us from God. Just like when you do something bad to someone else, it causes a gap in your relationship. On a much greater scale, sin creates a gap between us and God, a gap that we can't overcome. One of the ways I see the Bible describe this is it's like sin is darkness, but God is light. God in his holiness is light, and we in our sinfulness are dark. And what we all know is that darkness cannot enter the presence of light. And so it is that those who are sinful cannot enter the presence of him who is holy. Our only hope is if there is a substitute who can come on our behalf to take away our darkness and to provide us with the light that we need. And what we see in the Bible and in Christianity is that this was God's plan from the very beginning. When he talked to Adam and Eve, he promised that one day a substitute would come. When he made his promise to Abraham, his promise is that through Abraham's descendants, the substitute would come. Through all the prophets of the Old Testament, that promise was repeated and emphasized until the day that Jesus finally was born. And he was our perfect substitute for us. As we look at who he is, we see that he is true God. He is true human being. Uh, As God, he can provide us with the light of his holiness that we don't have. But also as a human, he can take away the punishment for our darkness. He was separated from God on our behalf. Throughout the Bible, you see Jesus elevate this concept of darkness and light because it's not until you realize how dark you are that the light of God is something that you see that you need. In fact, one day Jesus was talking to a man. Uh, This man had come up to Jesus and he asked the question, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And as Jesus talked to this person, he made it clear that this man was a lot darker than he thought. He was much deeper in sin than he realized. And so here's what Jesus said to this man who had come to him with this question. This is in Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus told him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Basically, Jesus told him, you have no right asking me about what is good, because the the, the light that you seek to become is not something that you can attain. And then Jesus goes on, he says, if you want to play this game, if you want to do something good to become holy and to become fit to live in God's presence, here's what you do. He goes on to say, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. The whole purpose for God's commandments was to show people what holiness looks like. God, who is light, who is holy, is without any sin. And the commandments, the 10 commandments and all the other rules, that we see in the Bible, they all show for us what holiness looks like. And what Jesus wanted that man to know is what he wants me to know and what he wants you to know. Is that within us, there is no light. There is no way for us to do enough good that we can earn our presence with God. But thankfully, Jesus is that perfect substitute, taking away our sin and giving us as a gift the righteousness and holiness of God. And this is at the very heart of what Christianity is about. And I'm so glad that the sign of a cross or the symbol of a cross is so prevalent because it always draws us back to what Jesus did for us. So when it comes to what Jesus did and why he had to die on a cross, I hope that every time you see that symbol, it's a reminder of God's incredible love for you, that he would send a substitute to be separated on your behalf also to give you the gift of God's holiness that you so desperately need. And when you grow in that, it really does change the way you see the world. So, the Bible says that it is God's word. The Bible says that God loves you. The Bible says that this world was created in six days and was completed in six days. The Bible says a lot of things, but what makes the Bible authoritative? And why does a Christian view the Bible as truth? Well, in this video, we're going to do a crash course in the Bible and what makes it authoritative in Christianity. And specifically, we're going to look at why Christians reference it so much. First of all, I can see how this would be a daunting thing because the Bible is so big and it's a collection of 66 different books collected, uh, written over 1,500 years. It's daunting to think about having to think through the entire Bible and try to explain it, but thankfully for simple people like me, the reason the Bible is authoritative really comes down to one thing. In fact, I'm just gonna share with you why I believe the Bible is true and then we'll talk about it a little bit. The reason why I believe the Bible is true and authoritative for my faith in God is because Jesus rose from the dead. And that might not make a lot of sense at first, but what I wanna share with you today is something that Jesus did the day he rose from the dead. First of all, before Jesus ever died, he continually pointed to scriptures. In fact, one day, as he was talking to people, he pointed to the scriptures and said, these are the scriptures that testify about me. That was his whole story. That was everything that his life revolved around, pointing to scriptures to give people a picture of who he was and what he would do. But then finally came the time for his death. And then three days later, his resurrection. And as you might understand and and, uh, relate with, the people who were following him were saddened by his death. There were several disciples, followers of Jesus, who still didn't quite understand the whole reason why he died and they were ready to go back home and just give up. There were two such disciples who were traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus, um, presumably walking home after Jesus had died and, and something unusual happened they started walking and Jesus actually started walking alongside them, except they didn't understand or recognize who he was. And so these disciples, it's kind of awkward, they started lamenting to Jesus that Jesus was dead. And they were going through the whole account of how he was crucified and they weren't sure what was going to happen. And just picture this. If some people were sad that you were dead, but you were really alive, what would you do? you would probably show them that you're alive but notice what jesus did as he's talking to these two disciples on their way to emmaus here's what he did for them it says jesus said to them how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken did not the messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Rather than just popping the confetti and showing them that he was alive, Jesus actually pointed them to scriptures to show them why he had to suffer and die and be raised again to life. And the cool thing is he continues to do this to this day. If you ever wonder where God is and what God has done for you, God invites you to look at the very same scriptures that Jesus used when he showed those two disciples what had happened. And for me, this really settles it. When when it comes to the authority of my faith in God, I put that in what Jesus did. Jesus, who died and came back to life, pointed to scripture as the authority for our faith. And for me, that's why I believe the Bible is true. But there's one important thing to keep in mind about the purpose of the Bible. The Bible is the authority for your faith, but it's not the foundation for your faith. When it comes to Christianity, your faith isn't in a book. Your faith is in Jesus, who died and rose again for you. But the cool thing is, Jesus, the foundation for your faith, pointed to the Bible as the authority for your faith. And the Bible is how God grows your understanding of what he's done for you. And this is a good time for for us also to talk about the value of digging into the Bible on your own and studying it. Uh, There's going to be all sorts of things that you can learn. I know it's a complicated book, 66 different books put together, written over a span of 1500 years. But the remarkable thing is that this book all focuses on one story of who Jesus is and what he did for you. And if you have some time today, maybe you can open up to Mark chapter one and start digging into what that story really is all about. If you're interested in learning more about the Bible or taking a next step with digging into it, I really encourage you to check out Pastor Jeremy's new series called Bible Breath. It's a way to grow in your understanding of how the Bible speaks to us even to this day. You can check out timeofgrace.org or look in the description of this video for more information. So when it comes to summarizing what Christianity is all about, a lot of people rightly turn to John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3:16 is full of good news, but it might also prompt a good question. It says whoever believes in him shall not perish. So the question it brings up is, well, do I believe? Or maybe you've wondered, do I believe enough? In this video, we're going to do a crash course into the whole idea of what Christianity says about faith and belief. And what makes this difficult is that our culture kind of has a different idea of faith or belief. We often view faith or belief as an inward ability to regard something as true. We have phrases like believe in yourself or just have faith. Most often, the, the idea of faith or belief draws you inward to create some sort of belief within your own heart, to regard something as true and to let that shape the way you view the world. But what I want to show you today is that the Bible has a different definition for what faith or belief really is all about. It's not about what is developed from within you but faith is something that God grows for you. And the best picture for this, or at least one of the best pictures, is earlier in John chapter three, where Jesus has a conversation with someone named Nicodemus. Nicodemus had some questions about who Jesus was, and so he came to Jesus during a time when Jesus would have been alone and they could have a private conversation. And it's interesting to see how Nicodemus approaches Jesus and how Jesus first responds. This is from John chapter 3. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. So right away, Nicodemus begins with what he knows. Um, For him, belief is an intellectual thing. They've seen what Jesus has been doing. And so they say, we know you're from God. But Jesus is going to change his definition of belief or faith because here's how Jesus responds. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus thinks he knows who Jesus is, but Jesus says, You can't really see my work or my kingdom unless you are born again. There are other scriptures that talk about faith in similar terms. Having faith is like being renewed or being made new. Having faith is like being adopted into God's family. Throughout all of scripture, including here in John chapter three, the origin of faith always starts with what God does for a person. You can't choose to be born. You have no effort in it. You can't be made new when you are still old. You can't choose which, of which family adopts you. In all of these pictures, scripture talks about faith not as an inner ability to regard something as true, but faith is a relationship where God comes to you and declares you to be his own child. So do you believe? Do you believe enough? I know that when it comes to the way we normally talk about faith, we talk about an inner belief that you regard as true. But when it comes to Christianity, faith isn't about what you do. It's not about how hard you can trust. Faith is more about a relationship than it is about an intellectual pursuit. Faith is about how God came to you and gave you the ability to receive the blessing of what Jesus died and rose again to provide. So maybe today you can work on your faith, not by developing an inner belief, but by letting God speak to you through his word. And the cool thing is, even in little videos like this, as you hear God's good news of Jesus proclaimed to you, those are ways that God creates faith in you and grows that faith every day. So, would you continue to let your faith grow? Not through what you do, but by letting God speak to you. So it might seem like there's a big loophole in Christianity. On the one hand, you've got the idea that Christians want to do good things and be good people, but on the other hand, why should they be good when they're forgiven anyway? So today we're going to do a crash course on what the Bible says about good works. And when it comes to good works that Christians do, I wanna handle this delicately because I know that some of you might feel like you've been burned on this. There was a Christian or maybe even a group of Christians who did something wrong to you and they never came back to make things right. For others of you, maybe you are the Christian who is struggling to do what's good, but you just can't make any progress to change your life. The Bible actually tells us why there's this struggle, and at times, an inconsistency in the way that Christians live. And it's brought out for us in Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul, as he was wrestling with doing good himself, put it this way. He said, So I find this law, or this truth, this principle, at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Though I want to do good, evil is right there with me." For a Christian, we, we have this natural reaction to want to pay forward what God has done for us. It's incredible to think about the way God loved us and the way that he sent his son into this world to rescue us from, from sin, from death. It's, it's incredible to think about the grace of God and what that means for a person who knows the darkness of their own sin. And grace means the simple unearned favor that God has for us, the the love that we could never earn or deserve. We as Christians simply wanna pay forward to the people around us what God did for us through his grace. But what Paul recognized is that as long as we're on this side of heaven, we will continue to have a sinful nature that completely works against that. The sinful nature despises the whole idea of showing people grace. you should only give them what they deserve. Uh, The sinful nature abhors the whole idea of selflessness. It, It will hold on to any advantage that it can possibly get. So as long as we're on this side of heaven, there will be a very real battle being fought. There's this desire to do good and pay forward what God did for us, but there's also the sinful nature that will work against it. So there are two things that you need to keep in mind when it comes to this struggle. First of all, God's favor for you doesn't change based on the presence or absence of good works. You can't improve what Jesus already did for you. God loves you and he sees you as his own child because of what Jesus did on the cross and in the empty tomb. The second thing to keep in mind is that when it comes to the good works we do, God never compels a person by guilt. It's never that you have to, to live up to a certain standard, but rather what we see God do is he always motivates us by grace. No matter how often you might fail and lose that battle with the sinful nature, God never calls you a guilty person who needs to make up. Rather, he comes to you with grace day after day to call you a forgiven person who gets to live in the peace of that forgiveness. So as you think about good works, There really isn't a loophole. God isn't after a conformity of our behavior. If he was, he would use guilt to get an immediate response. Guilt might lead to an immediate change in behavior, but it's grace that leads to a transformation that lasts for a long time. And our God is a God of grace. He's after your heart. He's not after your behavior. And so when it comes to the whole idea of good works within Christianity, There is no loophole because God is after our hearts.